Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Only the difference this time is that Angelina is in studio this week. And interestingly enough, Tim is going to be in studio next week, it turns out. So I'm going to get to share a studio with the two of you one at a time <laughs> over the next couple of weeks. Angelina, welcome to Concord, North Carolina. Welcome to the studio. Such, All right, as, such as it is. Such, oh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Y'all have no idea. <laughs> David went thematic. There's like spurs on the table. Yep, yep I did. It's Western theme this week. And during Howard, you guys didn't see it, but during Howard's end, we drank a lot of tea. Um, I've got my gun belt over the back of this chair. Yeah, yes, she, she does. But I just assume that's just because it's still Friday. Uh, Tim, how's it going? You are not at your regular place of recording, are you? As Woodshop, now I'm kind of in the opposite place. I'm in the cloister in St. Simon's Island, Georgia, mm. which is like this really, really nice resort. I'm here working for a client that if they are smart, they will pony <laughs> up some advertising dollars to Searcy uh, and get their name blandished. Blandished is not the right word. Spread about the uh, close Brand- reads. Brandished? I think I said blandish, but I don't know. What, I, I know blandished is a word. I just don't know what the word means. I don't think. Angelina, what does the word mean? What word? Blandish. Blandished. Isn't well, it a word? Blandished. No, blandish. Brandished. Yeah, I think brandished is what you're looking for. But I, yeah. I love that you would Shakespeare. Make up a word. Just roll with it. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it works. I love when it, people make up words. You know, I was reading a uh, book one of the Fairy Queen, and and he he refers to somebody wearing new fashion as being newfangled, and that's where it got invented. Huh? Huh? I, that is the word I use all the time. There you go. You're being Spencerian. Someone had to make up all the words. I am often told that I am very Spencerian. <laughs> So Tim, how is St. Simon's Island? I mean, it's a beautiful it's glorious. place. Is oh, the weather good. It's okay glorious. Right now? Yeah, the weather. It's. I mean, it's a little bit cool because it's early spring, but it's just it's sunny, a little bit breezy. The place, the cloister where this event is taking place, they held, they hosted the G8 summit there several years ago. Hmm. So that's kind. It's it's a really nice place. Nice. Well, speaking of. Uh, sponsors, I've got one to share with everyone for for this uh, episode. Um, Is the G8 uh, sponsoring this year, this week's episode? Well, I mean, only if they're using a different name, but I suppose anything's possible. Yeah. Uh, this summer from July 9th to the 14th, um, the Duke University's Arite Initiative is going to be hosting a high school summer seminar in ethics, philosophy, and religion. And this is on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, this is kind of an interesting deal because this seminar will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college, so philosophy, ethics, religion, so forth. Um, they'll be using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, and the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the ideas of natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. Uh, it'll be caught, co-taught by several Duke University instructors and professors and is open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years but here is the kicker tim if you had to guess how much something like this would cost what would you guess that it probably costs one thousand dollars angelina where would you put that if you had to guess for a five-day seminar on a university campus with multiple professors and everything 
2500 Okay. This is the kicker. Is this Price is Right? This is the one closest without going over <laughs> win the week. <laughs> then I bid $1. <laughs> Smart. There is no fee associated with this at all. What? What? Application, no application fee, no attendance fee. Nothing at all. Is there an age limit? <laughs> get, yeah, I was about to say. Well, can I go? Uh, juniors and seniors in high school. Uh, there is also... This that is, seems vague to me. This I is the other part of it. it. <laughs> yeah, how are you going to prove it? The other part mm-hmm. of it is that it's going to include housing in the Duke dormitories and the students will be provided with meal cards for the campus dining hall. So there's no cost for this at all. Students that are interested in applying should email John Rose and the email for that is John, that's J-O-H-N dot Rose, R-O-S-E at Duke.edu. Again, that's John dot Rose at Duke.edu. What's the catch? (laughs) (laughs) I guess I shouldn't say that since they're advertising. What's the catch? Email John Rose and ask him what the catch is. Firstborn child must be. Yeah, I'm a pulling a Rapunzel here. Firstborn <laughs> child, you have to get it. So applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th of this year. And again, the dates for that are July 9th through the 14th. This is the Arete Initiative, or the Arete Initiative. I'm not sure exactly. I should I should probably find out which one how they pronounce it because because multiple people pronounce that word differently. And that's through Duke University. It's the High School Summer Seminar in Ethics, Philosophy, and Religion. And again, that's, there's no fee associated with it for applying or attending. So if you go with Angelina's price, it was 20, savings of $2,500. Um, so that's a pretty great deal. So check them out um, if you have a junior or a rising junior or rising senior in high school who is interested in that sort of thing. Um, let's, talk, let's talk True Grit. We are here to talk True Grit. This is episode two. We are going to do a movie tie-in episode. Of course, we'll do the Q&A episode. I've got another bonus episode that I'm, I'm considering. Um, but Angelina said something to me interesting <laughs> before we were recording about Maddie Ross. Um, but before I let her say that, I want to know, Tim, <laughs> I'm dying over here. I think Maddie Ross just shot me in the chest. You need the bile activator. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm the bile activator flows freely. As it starts to go. <laughs> I'm going to, um, I probably I feel like this might be a good no comment moment. Um, Tim, Angelina, did he set out like a little, a little dish of bile activator mints on the <laughs> recording table? He asked me if I wanted Should to. Should I expect you know, that? Next relax a little bit before we went on the air. It's next to the ammunition. Um, <laughs> so, Tim, Maddie Ross. Yeah. What do you think of Maddie Ross? I love Maddie Ross. I why, love Maddie Ross. Why do you love her? Because she's iron-willed, precocious. Um, <laughs> gosh, what else? I just, I mean, I love how dogged she is about going after her father's killer. Justice will be done. Nobody else really wants to do the job, but she's making people do the job. That's not altogether true. It seems like roosters you know willing to do it but yeah he just i just if, I just, the, if the circumstances are right if the circumstances are right but he seems to be kind of changing a little bit he seems yeah. to be getting in maddie's corner yeah and i want to well i want to talk about rooster a little bit later i want to kind of go through a couple of these characters because this is one of those sections of the book where um portis is definitely taking us introducing us to a lot of different characters and he's yeah. more and more of maddie and how she interacts with people um, but the real action of the book, even by the end of the section, by page 113, 
has not really come together. It's got this whole magnificent seven, seven samurai thing going on where it's like, he's he's building her team. The first part of the magnificent seven, the classic Western movie, um, which is based on the seven samurai, the Japanese movie is it's like where he's built. He's got to build this team of people who are going to go protect this town who nobody else wants to protect. And here Maddie's the town, but she's standing up for herself. And so she's getting people who will help her, but she has to build the team first and it's proving difficult, but the real action of the story hasn't happened yet. And so it's all about the characters so far. What's super interesting to me about what you're describing is that in a medieval quest, the, the team that comes together for the quest always rallies around a lady. Hmm. Oh, right? interesting. Their devotion to the lady. And then they have the token for the lady. She sends them off on the quest. Tolkien even uses that with, you know, um, uh, what's the Galadriel, right? And, and uh, Gimli is so, don't you dare speak ill about the lady Galadriel. Like, so they're all in this yeah, quest yeah. And, and, and it's in the service of this lady. Uh, the, to, the twist here is that Maddie doesn't want to be the lady left behind, that they go out on the quest in, in service of the lady, right? She wants to be in on the quest. And she's not the, she's not, she's also not the damsel in distress who no. needs to be rescued. No, she's, so she, she's not either one of those typical female roles in a quest story. And then she's, she's like, she's got more agency than those characters. Right. Um, but of course she's then surrounded by these sort of archetypal characters, the marshal, there's a marshal and a ranger. Mm-hmm that are both these archetypal Western lawmen and she's got one on kind of either side of her, so to speak. And they're, you know, we'll, we'll learn more about them as we go. Many people have finished this book already. And uh, so we're going to talk about it. We're not going to spoil the ending for those who haven't, but I think like me, because I haven't, I haven't finished it. Tim, did you, are you, have you read to the point that to this point or did you finish, did you go further? I overread and I, I was enjoying it so much. I had to force myself to stop reading. So how far? Like, are you? I have, I'm curious. I gosh, I'm probably on page 150, maybe maybe even oh, deeper than that. For shame. Did you say 150 or 115? Because I was gonna say 115 is like two pages. 150. 150. <laughs> okay. okay. <clears throat> Read two extra pages. It was riveting. <laughs> what a what a what an independent thinker. Okay, so Tim, do you? Well, okay, I'm gonna turn this. I'm gonna flip it to Angelina now because Angelina, you told me. Tell me, tell everyone what you told me about Maddie Ross before we came on the air, okay. and then I've got some follow up questions. <laughs> okay, so I said that I thought our listeners probably were under the misconception that since I'm such a like a dreamy romantic adult person that I must have been like that as a child, and I think a lot of people imagine that my childhood was something like Anne of Green Gables. Uh, that is not at all who I was. Uh, being the dreamy romantic child who got into scrapes and couldn't reconcile her imagination and reality that was deeply frowned upon shall we say? that's to put it nicely to put it nicely that kind of behavior was deeply frowned upon in my childhood in your, fa- in your family right yeah. so that was not encouraged instead what i was expected to be was gritty self-reliant independent tough aggressive fierce persistent, dogged, and I'm reading these pages and I'm just like, I was Maddie Ross. So, <laughs> so you were more Maddie than Anna Green yeah, Gables. Yeah, you think in Anna Green Gables, no, I was Maddie Ross. Although, to be fair, we probably should read Anna Green Gables more because Anna, <laughs> Anne Shirley is many of those things. She might be, but it's, you know, I would have, would have never. Yeah, you would have been I, more about going on the quest yourself. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so then here is my, um, here's one of my questions. As we've we've read, a, yeah, I was super a, saucy. A little less. <laughs> You're at least one of those things still. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, we're a little under halfway through the book, and what I'm curious, when I I've read this book, this is the fourth time. Oh, wow. So I'm 
I've this time I've been thinking a lot about Maddie as a character and two questions. One of them being that that this particular section I think bring up. One of them is what is her quest for? What is it that she's actually after? And the second question is, is Maddie a character who is worthy of being imitated? Matt Bianco brought this last question up to me um, well, he, through Graham, and then Graham brought it to me. It's a whole story. But um, I, I think these are two interesting questions, and I, and I don't know that there's necessarily an easy answer for either one. Um, because, and I think they're probably tied together because I think what Portis does is he creates a really complicated character. I think that he creates a character that is, there's not, she's not easily definable or like you can't box her into a corner and not that she would let you, but um, uh, Tim, I'm going to turn that over to you first. Having read through page 113 through this, those two more sections, yeah. what would you say her quest is for? If you could say one word and put that in one, maybe two words. Justice. And Angelina, would you agree with that? Would you say that, that is what she's after? I feel that she's after justice, but the word she's using is vengeance. Okay. And I, because I've been, I've been trying to think, of, I've been thinking through this. When we say, she uses the word vengeance. I've had the word revenge in my mind more this time after reading it this time than I ever have before. Tim, why do you get, why is justice the word that you use? Because it is, I think that the, if Cheney is killed by the proper governing authorities, or even really Maddie acting kind of within the bounds of the law, whatever that might look like, mm-hmm. then justice has been done. I, she uses the word vengeance. Um, and I wonder if she's using the word because she is emotionally animated in the pursuit of justice. I, I agree that it's justice. I don't, it's not, it's not vengeance in my mind, at least not what we've seen so far. I, I, what's the, okay, what's the, let's, let's define our terms here. What do you think she means by vengeance and what's the difference between vengeance and justice in this situation? Or or is it, is, is it getting vengeance? Does that deliver justice? She seems a little bit to be using them the same way. Don't, Don't you think? Yeah. To me, they mean different things, but she's, I think, wants them interchangeably like because she's not talking about wanting him killed she's talking about wanting him hung in the fort smith right where the she wants him pronounced guilty and punished that's that's it that's a desire for justice and um but what about the part that you know there's the whole conversation when she and libby for first having their little secret meeting and he's saying well he also needs to pay for Mm-hmm. you know killing a senator and she says no no no. i want her to pay for specifically killing my father right and that's why the idea of revenge has been on my mind like maybe it's maybe she wants personal. justice but it, yeah personal is maybe the, the term do you tim does that do you think does her desire to have him um punished for a specific crime does that still allow for her primary goal to be justice within the context of this book yeah i mean i think the way that we typically talk about vengeance vengeance or revenge is um we've talked about this on other shows it's that was kind of a notion of justice in which basically it was eye for an eye but there was no end to it if your brother came over into my tribe and killed my brother then i would seek vengeance i would seek revenge by going back and killing one of 
your siblings or your family members. And the trouble with that is that there's just no, there's no end to it. I mean, one of the things we brought this up in relation to Hamlet, um, Hamlet was written, of course, in Christianized England, but the story takes place in pre-Christian Denmark. And there's this whole question of does the reason that Hamlet dithers in his pursuit of the king, the murdering king, is it because he books, like has some notion of Christian justice and he's trying to kind of like break the revenge cycle or something like that? But it seems like in this story, it's a pretty neat story in that vengeance and justice, she's, she's using the word vengeance, I think, because she is personally involved. But as far as I can tell, it's, it would be a just thing to have Cheney meet the law and meet his end. Right. So right now, I think they're synonyms. It'll be interesting to see if at any point that diverges, right? Um, yeah. If her, her aims are different than the law's aims at any point, because, you know, she hires a marshal for an arrest, which is not the same thing as hiring a hitman, right? Yeah. And he might turn into that, mind you. I don't know how the story is going to go. We, we have certainly have enough hints that he's okay with that in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Can you guys turn to page 74? In your, in, this is in the movie tie-in, the one that looks like the the wanted poster sort of but it's a few pages into this next this section we're starting here and there's a part there where um this is this is labeef and um maddie talking um let's see here there's a classic one of her classic lines of understatement here where when uh when he escapes (laughs) she's like that it would be a letdown um Let's start with that next line after that. And Tim, you want to be Labeef and Angelina, you want to be Maddie? Oh, I would love to be Maddie. So, so Tim, we'll start 74 with the start with the line. Maybe I will throw in with you and your Marshall. Okay. You and that's Labeef. Doped up in this scene. Should I play it? Should I play it doped you, up and loopy? Hey, you play it however you want. <laughs> you got to make a choice. You're the actress here. You have to make a cho- choices for yourself sometimes. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go for it, Tim. I'll be the narrator if it's necessary, but I don't think it is. Maybe I will throw in with you and your Marshall. You will have to talk to Rooster Cogburn about that. It will be to our mutual advantage. He knows the land, and I know Chelmsford. It is at least a two-man job to take him alive. Well, it's nothing to me one way or the other, except that when we do get Cheney, he is not going to Texas. He's coming back to Fort Smith and hang. Ha, ha. It is not, impor- it is not important where he hangs, is it? It is to me. Is it to you? It means a good deal of money to me. What would would not a hanging in Texas serve as well as a hanging in Arkansas? No, you said yourself they might turn him loose down there. This judge will do his duty. If they don't hang him, we will shoot him. I give you my word as a ranger on that. I want Cheney to pay for killing my father, not some Texas bird dog. It will not be for the dog. It will be for the senator and your father too. He will be just as dead that way. You see, uh, he will be just as dead that way. You see and pay for all of his crimes at once. No, I do not see. This is not the way I look at it. I will have a conversation with the marshal. It's no use talking to him. He's working for me. He must do as I say. I believe I will have a conversation with him all the same. I realized I'd made a mistake by opening up to this stranger. I would have been more on my guard had he been ugly instead of nice looking. Also, my mind was soft and not right from being doped by the bile activator. <laughs> um, 
So this line here, I'm, it stands out to me every time I read this book where um, Labeef says, he will be just as dead that way, you see, and pay for all his crimes at once. And she says, no, I do not see. That is not the way I look at it. Um, I'm having a hard time figuring out if, if she's right. Like, are we, are we meant to sympathize to be in agreement with her or with Labeef? How do you feel like Portis or even the voice of old Maddie looking back on it? Does she sympathize uh, with herself as a young person? Does she, does she think she was right? Or do you think um, that we should view Labeef as, as also like, is it right that, you know, maybe, I mean, granted, maybe Labeef's not after justice himself. He's just after a payday, but um, we'll find out more about that. But um, it is what well, they're talking a lot about a code here, right? which is a theme that evolves in this book. So she's saying the judge will do his duty, like duty and doing the right thing is something she talks about all the time. Um, but then he says, if they don't hang and we will shoot him, I can give you my word as a ranger. And so he's talking about, you know, this idea of his word as a ranger. So duty, word as a ranger, like these things are meant to mean something. Um, and so the idea that there's like a code kind of that they're all supposed to live by. Do you think therefore within that context, we're supposed to... Um, who do you think we're supposed to sympathize here with and who's right? Or is there not a right answer to this? He says he'll pay no matter what for all his crimes. And she says, no, I don't mm. see it that way. That's not the way I look at it. I think we're meant within the book to sympathize with her. Um, now is, is, does our sympathy lie against like some higher notion of justice? I kind of don't think so. What do you mean by that? Like you feel like we can sympathize with her and it, it is actually in line with high, a higher notion of justice. Like they're not in conflict. I don't think they're in conflict. I mean, there might by the letter of the law be a conflict because, you know, Maybe LaBeouf is, you know, been tracking the killer on behalf of this dead senator, you know, for longer. So maybe technically speaking, the law is more with him. But it seems like it seems like a um, a minor infraction, if it even is an infraction. Angelina, what do you think? I I agree with I agree that our sympathy is supposed to be with Maddie. I don't think that Labeef comes off as entirely trustworthy, especially with his later conversation. Mm -hmm. And, and then ultimately he proves that he, he rips her and stuff like that. Right. There's, so, there's not a lot of generosity of spirit behind Labeef's shine. Right. And I guess I'm also thinking she doesn't trust him. She doesn't trust that justice will actually be served if, if, if he's not brought to Fort Smith where she can actually see that it happened. So there's, there's a, the pragmatic side, like maybe he'll escape. We don't know what those judges down there will do. Mm -hmm. I don't trust the justice in Texas, which I'm sure our Texas listeners will be offended by that. But well, back there, at this day, that would have been certainly. Yeah. The further West you went, the more right. wilderness it was. So. Exactly. And so the, the breakdown of law and order there, but then even today, jurisdictional issues are very complicated when you have crimes in multiple states mm -hmm. and the, you know, they make all kinds of decisions of where to try the case based on who's got the best penalties and who's got this and who's got, I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, I think that's a complicated moral dilemma. Where should he hang? The fact, 
he basically says, I promise you I'll kill him. So one way or the other, he's going to be dead. This is my promise to you. This guy you want dead will die. And that, but that's not enough for her. That's not exactly what she wants. She wants justice. She wants him convicted. She wants to see him hang. That, at least at this point in the story, is important to her. And I, I feel like she wants to honor her father, right? Like this is to honor him. This, the right thing has, like the whole world has to recognize it was wrong for you to have killed my dad. You're condemned for this crime. That just seems all part of it to me. Mm. One of the things I like about this section that I wanted to read is because I think that it, it offers a new layer of complication for her character. I mean, even in this part where the, the line that I read at the end there, that little paragraph, I would have been more in my guard had he been ugly inst- instead mm-hmm. of nice looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and also my mind was soft. Like that's almost like a throwaway thing. But we also get that like she's not quite as single-minded maybe as we think she's still like I, I have this theory that she secretly is like super enamored with Labeef and um there's a lot of different little lines in it that kind of drop that in there that she, that there's something about there's something romantic about this sort of like traditional western character that that she's sort of enamored by um and then also her she's like also my mind was soft so like as an old lady, she's, she's, she's like too proud to admit. She's like, I, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Me. It's not my fault. I that I, yeah, exactly. So she, she can't kind of admit that she makes a mistake or that she could say the wrong thing, even as an adult years later. Um, and that's an, there's an interesting evolution of that in the book. And, and so this section, I think, begins to give us a more complicated Maddie Ross than earlier on, where she was just kind of like single-mindedly trying to go get what she needed. And um, it, it, maybe it makes her less, it makes her more sympathetic, a little more human than this like superhuman 13 year old that can go do whatever she wants well, and get I mean, things for gosh, people. 13 or 14. I mean, that's a coming of age story. Young girls get enamored. They get oh, crushes for sure. But early on in the book, it doesn't come across that. No, way. like that, that's an evolution of this character. Right. Like, even from the very beginning, you know, it's like when she's looking back at herself, she views herself as maybe more powerful than she was or like more stalwart than she was. And so we get Portis introduces bit by bit these things, these moments where maybe it makes her seem a little bit younger, like a little more consistent with a young person. But then the older narrator, the voice of the narrator still is like, oh, no, 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 no. I, it's, it wasn't, I was the drugs. It was the drugs. It was the sickness or whatever. Um, well, yeah, I mean, on the next page, you, you have the whole line where he says, I thought about kissing you, but now I want to spank you. And her response, one would be as unpleasant as the other, which was amazing <laughs> and awesome. Right, yeah. But, but there's a little, you know, there's some banter there. Yep. Right. The youth of Texas are brought up to be polite and to show respect for their elders. And then she says, I noticed people of that state also gouge their horses with great brutal spurs. I know. You push that saucy line too far. I have no regard for you. And then he just clanks away in all his Texas trappings. (laughs) Rooster Cogburn is sis, baby, little girl. Go home to mama, little girl. That is not the way this guy is mm-hmm. interacting. They're having a power struggle. Mm-hmm. Both of the things, I, w- I can either steal a kiss from you or I could, you know, give you five or good licks with my belt. They're, those, those are both, that's power language. I was going to have power over you one way or the other, either seductively or beating you. Mm-hmm. And she says, I don't want either one of those. So they're having, a, they absolutely are having a power struggle. I mean, and it continues, right? Right. The Maddie Ross theme is on page 79. It's like when she says, if you want anything done right, you'll have to see to it yourself every time. Yep. That's the Maddie Ross thesis to the whole book, basically, it seems like. I mean, oh, I just, she's so awesome. I love that he beats her. She fights him off. 
And then when Rooster puts an end to it by threatening to shoot Labeef, she stands up and says, this gives me a great idea of how we can get Janie. Like, just like, her strategic mind is so, uh, she's not, instead of being humiliated and mad, she recognizes that she won the day. She took a beating, but she won the day. And she then reasserts her power. This gives me an idea of how we can catch our man. But it also kind of draws her even with, well, it obviously makes her an ally with, um, yes. with Rooster. Yes. And, and, and it flips the power dynamic back. Like she's not going to be the little kid who's begrudgingly allowed to come on. She's going to assert herself in a position of leadership. She has not been humbled by the beating. Right. Do you think, uh, I mentioned she come at times there's these little hints that, that even as an old lady telling the story, she's got a lot of pride. Do you think that that is a character flaw, Tim? Like, do you see that as being a flaw or is it color, so to speak? I don't think it's a character flaw. Is it, does she call it pride? No, I'm calling it pride. Yeah, I don't know that I'm ready to call it pride either. I would call it something like, uh, or self-confidence. Gumption probably be the more chronologically appropriate term well i'm referring more to the idea of like she can't admit when she, that she made a mistake type thing oh, oh, oh. oh yeah right. that seems to me like that seems to me like it's a little i mean even the fact that she recognizes it is to her credit um whereas i think a really prideful person that just don't even recognize it just steamroll right over that character flaw but you think that's maybe i don't know i gotta think about that i see it the more i read it the more i see her being like as an old lady looking back, not so much young Maddie, but as an old lady looking back, like she's sort of protecting her, the reputation she's presenting for herself. So she can't, she can't have made a mistake or said the wrong thing or whatever, except that she was um, drugged by the bioactivator. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds... <laughs> Ellipsis. <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> <clears throat> but I love how she's changing already in this section. So when she goes back to Stonehill, I mean, there's no more power struggle there, right? He's just, he's been bested. Now he respects her and he's talking to her and making other arrangements and it's fine. And then sells the horse back to her and have the price he paid for it. Yes. <laughs> just willingly. Stonehill's an amazing character, I think. Yeah. And he's got the malaria, which again, I mean, everything about him is I don't fit in here. This is the wilderness. I, I can't, I'm not cut out for that. You know, Graham and I were actually talking about this at lunch today because he is just, he's been reading along or he actually just I thought you were going to say he's got malaria. <laughs> Graham, <laughs> every time Graham gets malaria, we talk about True Grit. Um, so um, he was mentioning Stonehill and how much he likes him. And it got me thinking about how, you know, I mentioned last week how at one point he says in the first, the first section that we read that uh, I wish I'd gone back to Pittsburgh or I stayed in Pittsburgh or whatever. And then in this section, he says, everybody told me this was going to be the Chicago of the, of the West or whatever. So he just... He he, kind of is in a, in a way he could be there just as a stand-in for like the cross between the east and the west. Like this, yeah. it, it's a reveal. It reveals just how lawless and wild and unlike the east this western part of the country is, and how yeah. it's, the civilization it's not truly civilized yet. It hasn't gone there yet. So he could just be a stand-in to represent that, and he is. But he also is a character. Mm-hmm. Like port. This is where you get the difference between a decent novel or interesting oh, novel yeah, yeah, yeah. and a great book. I will say yeah. lowercase g, lowercase b if you want to. Um, but that's what makes, like when you can create an archetype like 
like Matty Ross or Labeef mm-hmm. or um, Rooster or Stonehill. You can create these stand-in characters that represent something, but they're also real people. That's what makes mm-hmm. a great book. Mm-hmm. And a character who's only in it, Stonehill's only in what, six pages? But the, the way he creates this picture for us of who this character is, what he's experiencing, and also representing what so many other people are experiencing is masterclass writing. And, yeah, and that's why... You know, that's why it's on he is on par with, you know, Cormac McCarthy, in my opinion. Tim, go ahead. I was gonna I was gonna talk about something slightly different, which is it's fine. Go ahead. Um the the main foibles of Maddie that I see are just foibles of her age. They're not like character mm-hmm. defects or lacking in it's one of those things, you know, when I was when I was younger, I had so I guess maybe like all of us. There's so many things I look back at my 14-year-old self or my 24-year-old self, and I just, I would be embarrassed to be in the same room with me, you know? Um, But then I kind of think about, I'm like, no, a lot of those things, just like the kind of arrogance of my, of being 14 is just, that's just part of the development process of being a human being. And it's a lot, I can have a lot of sympathy with myself. So when you asked earlier, David, is Matty Roth someone you know, that we could, that should be emulated? I thought, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I honestly can't find a fault with her other than the fault of being 14. And I don't even think that that's a fault that I would even um, accuse her of because we're all 14. We're all we all think we have it figured out when we're that age. We all, you know, are stubborn about um, convictions because we haven't learned the value of benevolence and generosity and humility yet. You know, do you think that, that um, she is wrong to not um, be merciful, more merciful to her father? Cheney? Yeah. Or yeah, or towards people like she's very hard edged, and part of that is yeah. demands of the time and the place. But do you think that she's wrong to not offer more mercy to the people around her, Angelina? I want to toss that over to you. I'm I'm just curious what you'd think about that. Mercy to who exactly? Well, to Cheney. Like I mean, she's definitely out there saying I want him dead, um, and it, she's very hard. She deals very harshly with almost everybody. She does. Is that? Do you think that is purely? Do you think she needs to be as harsh as she is, or she feels like she needs? To be she definitely feels like she has to. Be. I mean, she's a child and a woman, mm-hmm. and it's also it's also the wild world. Like just to flip this back on Stonehill again, mm-hmm. right? So so it, he is an East versus West character, and so I loved this this little exchange between them, and I think it illustrates what I'm what I'm trying to say. Okay, so. What page are you on? I'm on page 91 when he says, yes. drown like the pharophilia. So this is definitely yeah, yeah. high culture, Shakespearean reference, educated Eastern cultured man. Everything yeah. that he represents, right? Of course, with her, it was doubly tragic. She was distracted from a broken heart and would do nothing to save herself. I am amazed that people can bear up and carry on under these repeated blows. There is no end to them. And her response, she must have been silly. Like, that's <laughs> hilarious. But it's also, okay, so if this is East versus West which I think it is. And then she moves right on to business. Right. Which I think it is. Okay. Yep. Stonehill is the one who can't survive. He's got malaria. He's getting, you know, 
snookered. He's made a mess of it. Yeah. He is, he can't survive. That view of reality can't survive in the West. So while it's hilarious that she calls Ophelia silly, it's also not, right? Like Ophelia can't survive in the Wild West. Maddie Ross has got to be tough to survive. And right. So, so I don't. She needs to be more like a Rosalind than an Ophelia. Yes. Like she needs to go into the wilderness, into the woods. Right. And make a life for herself. So, So, I mean, I'm stretching the. So I think there's bigger questions of, uh, and can you have mercy in the West? Can you have culture in the West at this time? With you know, it's it's the uncivilized world, and it seems to me that this is the way you have to be to survive. Rooster Cogburn is a survivor. Mm-hmm. Stonehill is not, and yeah. and that's the difference. And the, and that's why I love the way he develops this character because he can have these references to an Ophelia or something, and and we know then that he we feel that he represents that clash between the East and the West, between civilization and wilderness and the transition from wilderness to civilization and how difficult and challenging and hard and how much time that takes. But that's a, re- it's done in a way that feels lived in. Right. Mm-hmm. And like the difference, if this was Howard's end, and I don't mean to pile on this part of Howard's end, but if it was Howard's end, it would pull back and the narrator would say, you know, how much he represented this and how he was thinking mm-hmm. about all that. But Portis gives it to us in two lines that feel lived in. Right. Like you can feel the Stonehill's anxiety and desire for civilization in that reference to Ophelia. And so right here we have the teenage girl, the anti-romantic, the man, the romantic, sympathizing with Ophelia, right? And the, the tragic plight of women. And she's just like, she must have been silly. So I am literally reading True Grit alongside the adventures of Tom Sawyer. Hmm. That is a fascinating comparison yeah, yeah. because Tom is the romantic. Yeah. They are completely opposite characters. Which I actually think is what Twain is doing with Huck Finn and Mark Twain. Like, I think he's doing that on purpose. Oh, absolutely. So those two characters oh, are meant yes. to be. Yeah. Because cause Tom Sawyer is living in a fairy tale. And the humor is that the fairy tale in his imagination doesn't live up to reality. Like, right. oh, I wish we had, there have been no more nobility in the world since outlaws, yeah. you know, since crime, since law and order has come in and taken the outlaws out, there's no more nobility in the world. And literally right after that, he meets an outlaw committing a crime and is terrified. You know, so that, that, so it's almost the same thing that's happening in True Grit. It's so fascinating. It's kind of in the same general vicinity of the country, you know, Missouri, kind, kind of the same time period. And Portis is a hundred percent, well, oh, sure. very much an inheritor of the Twain of tradition. Course, who, what American a, author's not, right? A, but even yeah. the way he writes, like the humor, the, the deadpan, all that right, kind of stuff. Right, And so Tom Sawyer is such the romantic to no end. He, oh, and he's superstitious. Maddie's not superstitious. Right, you will see that, yeah, that what true. they say about horses. I so I'm picking yeah. up on all this stuff because Tom is she's like the opposite of Tom Sawyer in almost every way. Yeah, that's good. Um, let's talk about Rooster, played by John Wayne in the, in the original movie. Won an Oscar, I heard. He the, that's the internet. Thank yep. you. <laughs> um, he's one and only, I believe, and it's played by Jeff Bridges, who is also known if for those who are. Um, as the Big Lebowski. As the Big Lebowski for some people who <laughs> might know him as that. Uh, he, one thing that I think that is interesting is how funny he is and how unaware Maddie is or how uh, much she misses how funny he is. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think of. You both come down heavily in favor of in the Maddie Ross camp. Uh, Tim, how, where do you fall in the, the Rooster Cogburn camp? I love him. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I should respect him, but I do. <laughs> that's gr- I, okay. That's a great, that's a great point. Though. That's a great way of putting that. 
I was trying to put my finger on what it is that I feel about him. And I think there is like, it's almost like a begrudging respect. I'm glad you yeah. So what do you mean by that? Like that you feel like you should respect him or maybe you do, but you don't feel like you should. What is it about him that makes you feel like you do, but then makes you feel like you shouldn't be feeling that well, way? I think that he, I mean, you and Angelina talked about it last week. He's kind of a night figure. Um, he, he takes the law into his own hands. And he probably does stuff, evidence his court trial testimony, that he shouldn't do. He, he looks like he, um, you know, stuck the guy's hand in the fire to exact information from him. So he goes beyond the pale of what's legal. But I, what I respect about him is I think he definitely has a notion that's probably accurate that there are good guys and there are bad guys. I think he knows who the bad guys are. I think he knows who the good guys are. Um, Hmm. I think he plays loose with the law with the bad guys, but it's not as if he's lost his moral compass. He has a very clear moral compass. Um, Where do you, um, I'm just, I don't mean to, I'm not saying I disagree, but is there any specific areas where you see evidence of that, that specific, that moral compass? He's not okay with beating a child. Okay, say that again. He's not okay with beating a child. That's something. (laughs) True. (laughs) More than the other guy. True. He pulls. He draws on the beef. I mean, that's he just. I trust his narration of these different characters that he's been in pursuit of. He, you know, he gives little biographies of these guys that he's been chasing and he's met up, you know, out on the range. And I just find, and I think that Portis wants us to find that his representation of their characters is accurate. You so know, the fact that he's honest about even his dealings with them, like, yeah, I shot the guy. I mean, yeah, I shot the guy and he was a bad guy. And I think that he's, I just believe his, I believe his assessment that they were bad guys. So he's Omar from the wires, what you're saying. I kind of think, Yeah. <laughs> Omar's a little bit more dubious. For the seven for listeners who have yeah, watched The Wire. I don't know what y'all are talking about, but okay. <laughs> Omar's one of like, mutual, like the appreciation best for the television line. characters I think that's ever been. He's just absolutely superb. To be clear, He's a little not, bit. we're not publicly recommending that everybody watch <laughs> no. The Wire. I just need to point that out. <laughs> okay, so the other thing that's maybe problematic about um, Rooster is he's an alcoholic. appears to be an alcoholic. And I've had this question about myself is, is he an alcoholic because um, he's just a good old fashioned alcoholic because he likes to drink or is there something more going on? Meaning Mm -hmm. um, is he kind of washing away? Yeah. Is there something that he's having to wash away? I mean, it just has to take a toll on you basically treading the line of the law in pursuit of the bad guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, also just the fact that he's alive. How many of these, I mean, they gave him the numbers of how many of these guys die just so he's old and he survived. So that, you know, yeah. Old, old by Western standards. I think he's in his forties. I think he's in his late forties, but <laughs> well, I mean, but, yeah. and, but, but, but old in terms of the job, this right. Right. Not, right. Yeah. Not, most of them die. Yeah. Long-term employment. Yeah. And I loved all, the little details that showed his struggle with the system, like his inability to make the the, the sheets that have to be turned in, and Maddie has to help him with that, and mm-hmm. um, so that that strain against the system and, again. Oh. And you've got civilization and the wilderness, yes, clashing. And all of that. his comments about this is so stupid that I have to fill up, and it is. He's so stupid that he has to fill up paperwork to go kill me. <laughs> like it is. It is 
like I totally, I feel also someone who hates paperwork and probably would do it as well as Rooster Cogburn did. Uh, I've, I really related to that. So in that scene. way, you're not like Maddie. <laughs> right, no, no, I, I want Maddie to come and do my paperwork for me, but. Um, your daughter, your daughter's yeah, your Maddie. No, she totally is. That is a saucy little girl right there. Um, but <laughs> I could see her saying all of these. <laughs> but but I, I loved all those little moments where he's, he's, he's feeling like I don't fit into this system. Mm. And even, even the comment of all the trouble that this trial gave me, I should have mm-hmm. shot him in the head instead of in the collarbone. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I wanted to bring him in legally. I wanted to get the reward. And all it did was cause him trouble. Mm. Yeah. And you get the sense that he probably, would he have really shot the guy in the head instead of the collarbone just for that? he might shoot a guy, but probably not just to avoid, I mean, like there's a lot of gray area there in him, like as to what he would actually do, how much of it is talk. Oh yeah. I definitely thought it, I thought it was kind of a frustrated for all the trouble y'all are giving me for doing the right thing. Yeah. It would have been much less of a headache to have done the wrong thing. Well, the, the idea of the right thing is a big theme in this book, even where well, she, yeah. she says, you're just trying to, uh, she says, you'll sometimes let money interfere with your notion of what right, of oh, what yeah. right is. Yeah. Yeah. She says that to her beef, I think. Well, hey. And both of them have that moment of, you know, well, can't we figure out a way that we can all be winners here? Yeah, true. All right, before we keep talking about Rooster Cogburn, we're going to take a quick break because I need to mention our friends over at the Honors College of Belmont Abbey. Angelina, you know all about them. We've talked about them before. But if you or your students are interested in joining a group of morally and intellectually serious young men and women who are seeking wisdom through a great books curriculum, it's a great option for you. There are a number of flexible options. Did I say flexible? Flexible. That's exactly. Yeah. How they flexible. Say it there. They say it That's how we say it in Gastonia. The the Honors College allows you to take any major offer at Belmont Abbey College while exploring the greatest works by the most brilliant philosophers, poets, theologians, and historians in the Western tradition. And their distinctive approach affords you the opportunity to participate in the highest form of friendship, a shared life dedicated to the pursuit of wisdom. If you want to learn more, you can head over to bac.edu slash honors for more information. Again, that's bac.edu slash honors. Schedule your tour today. My son is the new tour guide, and he's also a head of orientation in the fall. So if you need some help oh, moving nice. into your dorm, my son orientating you. <laughs> <laughs> orienting. Orienting? orienting? Uh, no, it's not orientating. That I was wish a joke. it was. I wish it was. Oh, I knew you were joking. <laughs> it's just in my brain. It was like, yep, that sounds right. Uh at Belmont Abbey College, a life well lived awaits you. And again, that's bac.edu slash honors. So uh, you can head over there and take a tour with young Mr. Stanford. Well, no, well that's McBride. <laughs> um, Let's confuse our listeners. Yeah. There went his with, incognito. I always tell him no one will ever know we're related. <laughs> if you don't want them to, David, make a note. I, edit think, out his I, think, I, just, I think I just screwed up his plan. <laughs> Uh, speaking of plans, let's get back to Maddie Ross's plan. Let's talk. Um, let's talk about Rooster's humor, because I find him. The more I read it, the more I find him hilarious. And I and I really feel like early on in the, the relationship, Maddie doesn't get how much he is teasing her, and how much he's actually a very capable human being. Like there's things he's not good at. Like he's he he's drinking too much, right? He's very bad at doing math, <laughs> um, things like that. But he's also teasing her in a like the beef is teasing her in a mean way oh right and rooster yeah. is teasing her in a way that like you know you might with like a niece or something 
or like some, right. something so like that. It's not cruel. When we were talking, I was thinking about the differences that LaBeouf and Maddie are having this intense power struggle. Hey, but it specifically says that he Le- pronounces his name LaBeouf, Le-Beef. but right. it's spelled LaBeouf. You're That's why I have not been screwing that no, up. No, I know you haven't. I haven't. I'm capable. My of, soul revolted from the mispronunciation. I, I may so. be incapable of pronouncing, pronouncing <laughs> French words, but so was the character in the book. No, no. Well <laughs> taken. LaBeouf. Yes. Where's LaBeouf? Okay. Somebody had to say it, but. Uh, but Rooster Cogburn <laughs> is not having a power struggle with Maddie. It's almost like right, they're right. equal. You get the sense that, oh, they have met their match. He, he respects her. He does. Yeah. And she respects that he respects her. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But then, but so then Labeef makes the mistake of treating Rooster like he's an idiot and this girl has gotten the best of him. And he doesn't mm. like that at all. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Labeef yeah. sees everything in terms of this power struggle. Yeah, that's good. So he see, So you're saying he sees Rooster as weak. Because yes. the girl got the busted. Yes. And he's like, whatever, I'll just go with him, but I'll take over because he's not capable of doing right. it. Right. Okay, okay. Because everything for all these relationships are power struggles. He is, but, but it's not, none of the conversations between Rooster and Maddie feel like a power struggle. It feels like mutual respect. Even the teasing is respectful. Tim, do you agree with this? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It seems like he's just kind of, well, would you guys agree with the idea that maybe he's just over this idea of all these power struggles? He's like, even if it's just because the system's yes. beating him down, like, for him, it's a job. It's not about asserting power over somebody else. It's not about being dominant. Yeah. It's not about being well, you a know, hero. Like Wendell Berry says, some fights are for young men. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you guys go to 95? Because I think there's a line in here is really subtle that is super, that is like quintessential Charles Portis uh, revealing characters through like one word. <clears throat> um. Angelina, why don't you be... Let's start at the very top there, and then we'll read the first little bit here. But uh, Tim, you be Rooster, and um, Angelina, you be Maddie. Oh, I, I, oh okay. Well, I was going to be Fancy Pants LaBeouf, but I'm going to be Maddie. Okay. So at the very top, that's you. There is... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's me. Okay. There is no trouble, except of his own making. He made a proposition, and I turned it down. That is all. We don't need him. Well, now he might come in handy. It will not cost us anything. He has a big bore sharps carbine. If we are jumped by buffalo or elephants, he says he knows how to use it. I say, let him go. We might run into some lively work. No, we don't need him. I've already told him that. I've got my horse and everything is ready. Have you seen to all your business? Everything is ready but the grub and it is working. The chief deputy wants to know who had done them sheets. He said he would put you on down there at some good wages if you want a job. Potter's wife is fixing the eats. She is not what I call a good cook but she is good enough and she needs the money. LaBeouf says, I reckon I must have the wrong man. Do you let little girls hoorah you, Cogburn? <laughs> Rooster says, Rooster turned his, his cold right eye on the Texan. Did you say hoorah? Okay, so let's stop. I, the more I read this, the more I think it's hilarious. It begins, the first part that I think is hilarious is when he's trying to defend. It's like, ah, let's let him come. And you can tell he's kind of like, when you first read it, it seems like he's being combative with her. But I think he's just kind of needling her. Like he's having fun teasing her like you do with your little sister until she gets really upset. Yeah, but the whole, we might get jumped by elephants. <laughs> That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, right? He yeah. says, it won't cost us anything. He's got a big bore sharps coming. So he's also teasing yes. the beef for having this giant gun. Like, you know, and then he says, we might get jumped by buffaloes or elephants and like you can tell he's just like that's definitely a dig at his like what bravery or cowardice or like what, what beefs but yeah like yeah. What, what fight do you think you're yeah, looking for yeah. boy why you got that you know and also maybe like he just kind of and he's trying to like bring her in on the joke a little bit 
He yeah. he says he knows how to use it. I say let him. We might run into some lively work, and he's being all light about the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, he is. But yeah. she doesn't get it. No. And she's like, I've already told him we don't need him. I've because I've got my has, horse and everything she's is ready. Very. She's, she's resistant you, to change, right? She's just, that's yep. who her is. That's who she is as a person. Like we made the plan. This is the plan. Like, she keeps going have, back. To have that. you seen to your business? Have you yeah. seen to your business over and over again? And then this line of the stuff about the food is really funny too. He's he's kind of needling her again. He's like, you could go be the cook with her. Like he's he knows she doesn't want to do that. She wouldn't. That's not something she's interested in. But he's like, eh, we could put you down to work over there. You get you do good work over in the helping cook the food. She's not what I would call a good cook. But you could, there's like this humor. This he's not being nice to the cook obviously but he's you know he's keeping this whole scene light and even when labeef who's trying to be so serious he uses the word hoorah you can just see the character turning to him and be like did you say did you say hoorah and labeef's like i i did say hoorah and then that was the word <laughs> yeah and you could he's it's like you could just see him sitting in there like feet spread apart he's getting ready he's probably got like getting ready to draw down right and yeah. and, and 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 uh rooster says Maybe you'd like to see some real hoorah. And then Patty <laughs> jumps in. Like, she misses what's happening here, and she jumps in. She's insulted yep. that she's been called a little girl. Yep. The, the marshal's working for me. You know, this isn't... For, again, for Libby, I like... This power struggle thing is really good that you draw out. But, but Rooster just... He doesn't care. He doesn't care about it at all. He's like, maybe you'd like to see some real hoorah. And I like when you read it in the accents, like, mm-hmm. hoorahing looks like a word when, when written... But like when you say it, maybe, yeah, maybe like it's real hoorah, and you can just like he's just pushing back and teasing everybody around him. Yeah, and I can just imagine Maddie red faced here. She's so insulted. Yep, yep. And then they start talking about money. Do you? What do you make of the part where, um, the part where uh, they're on the, they push her off the boat. Rooster ultimately decides, yeah, take her back, and. Is he testing her there? And like then the the boat Scott, the guy that runs the ferry, pulls her off, pulls her horse off, grabs the reins. She hits him with the hat, goes across the river and all that. And meanwhile, and then they ride off and she chases them along. Did you think that Rooster in sending her back and kind of like leaving her behind, so to speak, is testing her? Or what's what's his end play there? Or what's going on there? Tim, what do you think? I didn't, I didn't think so. I thought that he was genuinely just thought it's going to be hard to take a 14-year-old girl into the wilderness. Yeah, like she, she's past. unproven. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I, well, I thought that the most uh, compelling things that they said was she's going to get killed. Mm. So I think Labeef is more like she's going to hold us back, this little brat. Mm. And and Rooster is is more, I think, persuaded by she might get herself killed. Mm. So yeah, okay. So he actually is like, I I don't want something to happen to you. And Labeef right. is like. He's gonna. This, this is goes an annoyance. Power. Yeah. yeah, this yeah. is an yeah. annoyance. She's gonna keep me from getting my man. Which I guess is proven out when you know Roosters protects her from Labeef. He generally doesn't want anything to happen to her. Right. He's willing to let her get a little bit. <laughs> Do you think that Maddie comes across as um, condescending to other people? <laughs> <laughs> She she didn't to me. Tim, what do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I think she just man, she has a really hard job. She, I think that she just it refuses to take no for an answer at any point in the book that we've read thus far. 
I think everything about her is so admirable. This image of her at the end, dressed in her father's oversized clothes, is fantastic. Like this is like King Arthur dragging the sword that's too big for him when he's a little boy, and mm -hmm. I mean, just the whole the whole idea that this is you're a child and you have this this quest and this destiny and it's calling it's way bigger than you and she's got to like literally she's gonna david wearing armor that doesn't fit yes right so she's gonna she's gonna have to yeah all of those archetypes so she's gonna go on this journey and she's gonna have to grow into the person who can fill her father's shoes mm. literally, like you know figuratively metaphorically literally all of it she's wearing his clothes it's just all she's the man of the family now right mm. and and she's in his two big clothes which was i just thought a fantastic image to just At the set end the of whole the metaphor yeah she's she's in his clothes and they're too big and she has to stick the newspapers in there to keep the hat from falling off of her and <laughs> everything about this is that she's she's outmanned for this job right this is too much for her but she's doing it anyway she's yeah. gonna learn to be the man who can do this or the mm. adult or the honorable probably would want to look at it but i mean you know what i mean and when the section ends of course they're they're riding off together. They, they've they've rejoined the party. The party is complete. It's actually riding together, and they're headed off to uh, territory to I knew not what she says. <clears throat> um, I, one thing that's interesting we've talked about in the past how midpoints in books often there's a turn from kind of wanting to know to pursuit, and it seems to me like we're roughly oh, almost yeah. exactly at the middle point of the book, and. It looks like to me the the turn happens on page one eleven. Hmm. Maddie goes from being kind of like the pesky younger sister to these other two to now she's one of the crew. You know she's she's going along with it, hmm. and the, the action the is unified. Is yeah, the hmm. pursuit is on. Hmm. David, I have to say earlier I heard you just hearing you kind of nerd out about this book i love hearing it in your voice you love this book uh, yeah i do uh, but I, one of the reasons i like it is because i read it multiple times i read it in december and i'm reading it again what i think i read it right at christmas time so what is that three months three months later and i don't it's like i'm reading it again for the first time i know oh, what really? i know what happens at the end but from you know there's a couple of great gunfights which are still fun to read stuff like that with stuff we're going to run into um but the evolution of the characters and like the little things, like the first time I read it, I didn't notice just how funny it was that Rooster referred to they might get jumped by elephants. Um, yeah. You know, it's little things like that. And that's where Portis, I, I just love the writing. Jonathan Rogers, who um, I, I, he wrote, he's in, he wrote the biography of Flannery O'Connor that, that we talked about back when we did um, the, the O'Connor shows. And Brian Phillips interviewed him um, for his podcast. He, I ran into him at um, a homeschool convention a month or so ago, well, a few weeks ago. And we were, he was comp com commenting on how we were reading this book and how he loves it. And I think the way he put it to me was he loves Cormac McCarthy, but he, when he reads Charles Portis, he wants to go write, he wants to go work on his own writing. Like Charles Portis is going uh. make him want to write. And I think it's got to be in part because of the way, you know, these characters are drawn with so much subtlety, but in a way, it's not in a way that's kind of, um, there's not that sense of uh, <clears throat> what's the word that I'm trying to think of. It's it's done in it, it's done in a way that's sort of plainly plain spoken, right? There's, it's kind yeah. of done humbly. It's not it's not sort of 
um, what is the word? Angeline, help me out with the word here. I'm it's just not thinking fancy. he has a light it's not, touch. Yeah, he's he got a light a touch. He's a very light touch. He can do complicated things in an uncomplicated way. He can provide subtlety in a way that is, that's not like uh, fancy or ostentatious or anything like that. It's not like, it's subtlety that doesn't draw attention to itself. Whereas sometimes you read a book and you're like, I can tell the author is trying to be subtle. And now I have to figure out what it is that he's mm-hmm. saying. Well, it's Whereas very this, straightforward, right? right. Straightforward and yeah. non, no nonsense. Just like Maddie. That's Maddie's voice. Yeah. Straightforward and no nonsense. Yeah. There's that obje- T.S. Eliot's objective correlative idea that, we're, that I always talk about. Maybe I'll actually. David, what do you mean by that? Well, it goes, um, Eliot wrote an essay called The Problem of Hamlet, where he writes about how he does not think Hamlet is, he doesn't think Hamlet's as good as everyone says. Because basically, there was not, Hamlet was not right to feel the way that he felt. That his, that his uh, perspectives and his, what, it, what, what Eliot would sort of call whininess, that's not his word, but the, all yeah. that, that's not, it's not justified, that it doesn't belong there, that Hamlet is not, not justly responding to the things that happened around him, that he should have responded differently. And so that there was not, there's not an objective correlative to the behavior of the characters and, or, and that the play, the way the structure and sort of pathos of the play is not, um, does not correlate to just behavior, so to speak. And there's sort of an asymmetry of feeling on Hamlet's behalf. Right. And so Elliot would argue that a great book, great poem, whatever it is, a great play offers in tone and in um, this, the language and in the themes, it opt- it, those things are in, correlate with the inner life of the characters and the themes of the book. Like all those things should 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 work in harmony with each other. Yeah, um, and that can happen sometimes very obviously and sometimes very subtly. And sometimes you can tell when the, where the lines are, right? Like you can tell where the stitching is. But a great book, a really great book, you can't see that stitching. You sort of just feel it. Mm. Um, like you don't. If you can see the lines of like if you can see the, um, you know, like when you watch a movie sometimes and you can see that they're trying really hard to make a point or, or like the shot is sort of ostentatiously done because you, you can tell what they're trying to do. But sometimes you can watch a movie and you, you, they do it in such a way that it doesn't draw attention to itself. You feel it. Mm-hmm. And for all the, the idea that there are um, objective truths in art, a lot of, there's still, there's still something to it to be said for a great artist creating using tone and mood and theme and idea and all the and characters and all the stuff to create a feeling and yeah. that feeling is done through subtlety that, that it doesn't draw attention to itself yes yeah. i always call that being pulled when i'm pulled out of the scene like something mm. something yeah. it probably is that it drew attention to itself and i feel pulled out of the scene yeah especially oh gosh i hate when it happens in in movies where i'm you know i'm tracking i'm in the movie i'm sucked in the narrative i'm having a good time and all of a sudden i hear this little voice in my in my head that says well look at him acting and that's yeah. i mean boom, <laughs> yeah. destroyed. That's or look it. at that fancy shot and to me yes. there's a difference though between like someone who is a filmmaker or a playwright or an actor could see that and say look at that choice they made look at that what they how they shot that because they're involved in the craft there's a difference between recognizing it as a craftsman and as a regular old right. reader being right. pulled out of it. Those right. are two different things. Right. Because like someone who studied how to frame a shot on a film, on a movie, or has studied acting is going to recognize choices that the artist is making. And that is, that's not, that's different. You know, that's useful. That's, that's being a craftsman and understanding. Well, you have to be is. able to do that while maintaining the connection with the audience, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the really difficult part. And that's what, that's what I think is 
great about this particular I book. have felt sucked into this story. I mean, I'm loving it. Completely sucked in. My new the my, fact that we have so many people that are that are finishing the book sort of yeah. accidentally yeah. is evidence that other people are feeling that way too. I mean, I felt the same fun. way. I forced myself to stop. I think I we're like, going to have a similar the book down. I think we'll have a similar effect with Woodhouse. Maybe it's going to be different. It's not an adventure book, but it, there's a, there's like it, the story is very keeps going, and you know I think people will finish it much sooner than than the show will finish it. <clears throat> um, well, let's. Are there any any final thoughts on this section and then any things that you're looking forward to as we move into the next section? And before I say that, my thinking is we read this next this next part is one long section that ends on page 175. So does that work to read to read to there for next week? Sure. Yeah, that works. Tim's basically done. Tim's already there. Yeah. I'm, I'm the one following directions so like a dope. We'll talk to you the next <laughs> section. I'm filling out the sheets. Yeah, you're writing, you're writing a talk for, for this week. Yes. You yeah. know, one thing that we didn't talk about, and I don't know if it's because we're avoiding the topic of predestination because it's such a conversation killer, but her um, description of predestination of the of the Indian woman who is Cumberland Presbyterian, and, she, and Maddie gives this little kind of... Wait, is that in the section we read? Oh, is it not? Is it not? I think it actually might be in the next section. Because I'm, oh, uh, I totally don't know what your job is. Like, man, oops. I missed a whole yeah. predestination motif. I... Well, something that Tim wants us to look for <laughs> is, it is something that, that I want you to Presbyterianism. Don't worry. No, I was going to make a predestination joke. I was going to say, don't worry. It. I can't. I can't even complete it. Oh, go ahead. The chosen no, will I notice just, it or something. I flopped. I flopped on a predestination joke. This, well, it wasn't in the Bates for you. One, in the one thing I think that's worth looking out for regarding that is, speaking of a light touch, is that Portis br- kind of brings across her ha- sort of harsh Presbyterianism. Her the, her the harsher side of her is in her sort of religious views, but he yeah. even presents that in a humorous way that is like as readers we can't help but sort of laugh at her. I, it's I, very consistent with her no nonsense. Right, Woodrow Wilson yeah. was the greatest Presbyterian of them all <laughs> <laughs> of the century. Uh, that's a pretty funny line. Yeah, <clears throat> that was funny. Okay, so what's the thing I'm looking for? So I always tell my students that when there's a quest motif or a journey motif, that you always have to remember that while there's a literal journey, there's a metaphorical and internal journey. It's always a spiritual journey. Any journey is a spiritual journey, right? Um, and so, of course, in American literature, Huck Finn is the, you know sets the standard for that and so we're all we're all very they're all very consciously tapped into that and so we we always have to look at the outside obstacles that are overcome as being representative of internal growth as well right so so you know odysseus has to slay the monsters to get home because he's got to learn the lessons right he's got to change he's got to be a different man he's got and every single obstacle along the way prepares him very specifically for something he's going to encounter in Ithaca. He learns very specific lessons and that allows him to, you know, successfully complete the quest. So I will be looking, okay, so this idea of Maddie and her dad's clothes that are too big, to me is highlighting the idea that she's, this is a coming of age story, that she's Mm going to undergo some kind of personal growth on this journey. So I want to know what is Maddie, because we already know Maddie Ross old lady we know her voice so there's a lot of things going on so we so know did, she survived right so, well that's Unless true right it's a ghost well there's also a, always a, a ghost story twist, not a ghost story plot twist, plot twist. um she dreamed the whole book right before <laughs> she died but uh, <laughs> yeah but and then rooster cogburn finishes it off she and she's dead but uh, <laughs> but he can't write so that would that's work. yeah good point. um but 
Yeah, so I want to see how does how does little girl Maddie turn into the voice, the narrator's voice? What, what's going to happen to her? How does she grow up in this story? My thing that I think everybody should look out for that I'm really enjoying this time is is uh, Maddie's, at least adult Maddie's, complicated feelings about the beef. Yes, I now that you're a, saying that. I have a, I have a, I really think that there, she is, she's sort of infatuated with him. She's enamored with him at least um, in a way that, you know, People can be enamored by complicated people who bully them. I'm, I'm going to say something as the only woman on the show, and then I will take all the hate mail because no woman is going to publicly want to acknowledge this, but we all know it's true. So now that you're saying, now that David's like, what is she about to say? Now no, that you're I, saying that she's infatuated with him, I feel like an idiot that I didn't see it because she, how many times does she call him a vain, pretty boy? Right? Like well, she. On 105. <laughs> Okay, listen, listen to this. This paragraph. is the dirty little secret of women. Oh, he's so vain about his good looks that I'm swooning over. I hate him. <laughs> vain man, him. Stop with that pretty face. Like, that's, that's, yeah. that's a, Brad Pitt is such a pretty boy, but I love him. Oh, my God. He's hitting this little handsome. Okay, so listen to this paragraph here in 105. Um, he, she sees Rooster and Labeef riding up together. They're coming together for the first time. They were both wearing their, their belt guns around their outside coats. And the first thing she recognizes, yep, yep. Beef cut a splendid figure with his <laughs> yeah. white pistols and his Mexican spurs. Yes. She notices like the jewelry. Rooster was wearing a dark a deerskin jacket over his black suit coat. He carried only one revolver in his belt. And she goes on and on. His gun belt was not fancy like Labeef's, but only a plain and narrow belt. So she starts comparing them. He carried cartridges in a sack, so he doesn't even have them in his gun belts. He also had two more revolvers in his saddle scabbards. They were big pistols like mine. So she, she and she correlates herself with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The two officers also pack saddle guns. But then Labeef carry is a gun called a Sharps rifle, a kind I had never seen before. That was like an exoticism oh, to yes. him. And then she's my first thought was Cheney, look out. So she's like, you know, like there's a little fangirling yeah, going on right. here. Right. So she's there's a complicated thing going yes, on where you're absolutely he's right. bullying her, but she and but she part of why I think she likes to fight push back against him and probably why he you know, she senses this power struggle and she pushes back against it. But there's also this, there's a romanticism to this sort of traditional Western character. Like, this is what we think of, right? This is the bad boy version of Roy Rogers. The fancy gun belt, fancy shirt, you know, the big hat. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's what yeah. we think of when we think of the traditional sort of, you know, fancy cowboy. And like, there's nothing about a, the traditional cowboy movie that you think of with Rooster, which the new movie really gets. He's this, he's a wilderness guy. He basically could be a trapper, right? <clears throat> and she, you know she he basically could be a farmer for all she cares mm-hmm. so um one of the things that i think is worth watching out for as someone who's read the book is the way she kind of that her the way her feelings about Lviv change and the way her independence asserts itself this is fantastic um, i'm loving this but, so what you've got here then is this anti-romantic no-nonsense girl who is struggling with her own infatuation <laughs> with this <laughs> right 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 with someone who she doesn't actually like like she knows he's not a right. good dude she doesn't want to be ophelia she's just said that yeah but she's acting like ophelia she is, she's yeah. mooning a bit yeah yeah and she hasn't yet come to the point where I've she been there, recognizes Maddie. <laughs> i can still talk about that boy in the third grade nine years old spoon <laughs> fest y'all those eyes <laughs> but she hasn't yet come to recognize that rooster is the ally the true ally Right. There's not he's not swoon worthy, but he's the one who's the ally for all the rough rough around the edges parts about him. Um anyway, that's I think that's worth looking out for as you that's keep great. as you keep reading. That's great. I love that. Hey, before we go, I don't want to cause any more problems with this, but we're down to four books. 
Penelope and Jane Eyre are up against each other. And Eleanor Dashwood and Elizabeth Bennet are up against each other. I think these are pretty... Are we really? That's a strong final four. Final four, yeah. Did I miss a vote? Um, I don't know. I can't speak to that, but... Wait, did it go 32, 16, 8, 4? Yeah, we're down to the four. You might have missed the eight. I'm not sure. But we went last... Like, the first one took a week because there was a lot more books. And after a while, you can only vote twice now, so... Um, Okay. So... I may may have missed... Eleanor Dashwood and Elizabeth Bennet. Where do you... What would you vote, Angelina? What's your prediction? Oh, I would vote Elizabeth Bennett, and I think that's my prediction. Tim, you concur? Yes, I concur. On both? I concur, yeah. Okay. Now, on the other hand, we have Jane Eyre versus uh, Penelope. Tim, Penelope or Jane Eyre? Prediction and personal vote. Penelope for both. Angelina? I don't know that I can predict about this. I clearly can. I clearly cannot. Hey, predict. Penelope's made it this far. Oh, barely. Your dad was literally in the hall giving me a pep talk. Angelina, you know you can't take this personally. Like, you know, <laughs> he's like giving me all the reasons why it's hard for people to understand about Penelope. And he actually said to me, you have to remember that you're a really discerning reader and you're just seeing things in Penelope that other people aren't seeing. I was like, this is not making me feel better. <laughs> well, I, I think one of the things about Penelope that I, I hope people will read the Odyssey. And I actually think Penelope is awesome in the new version that Emily Wilson did. I think she really mm. captures it. And like as a woman translator, I think she gets things. I really am looking forward to reading Other those. people may not. <clears throat> um, but she's not in the whole book. You know, there's long stretches where she's not in it. Um, it feels like at she times. she is the force of the book. That's like the whole point that I feel like, I, f- I feel like, when people are saying, but she's hardly in the book, is well, she, and raising the question, is she even in the main character? Yes, because she's the force of the, the whole. Everything that Odysseus does is because he's thinking of Penelope. Well, I th- and that's I th- I think that's where I, I hope people will go back and reread it, reread the Odyssey with Penelope in mind, you know, with thinking of her as the force. Of and the book. specifically at the so okay so so Odysseus comes home right, it's all resolved. Then the book weirdly right immediately goes to Hades, where the spirits are talking. And the dead, the, the body, the, the ghosts of the dead suitors come in. I just read this. <laughs> it's very fresh in my mind. They come in and they're like, Agamemnon's like, what happened to you? And he's like, oh my God, Odysseus, he's the worst, right? Totally just ransacked us, killed us. It was terrible. Design. He's just ranting against Odysseus. And Agamemnon's response is, Penelope, there is no finer woman that has ever existed. Ever. Your fame will be known forever and your song will be sung forever. And I mean, that's, that's how the Odyssey ends, right? With the promise that, while the suitors are talking about everything Odysseus says, what Agamemnon hears is, Penelope, what a great woman you are. Your song will be sung. And to me, that is Homer saying. And, and Agamemnon says specifically, like Achilles' song and fame is always going to be known. Penelope's song and fame is always mm. going to be known. And to me, that's the Iliad, the Odyssey. So the Odyssey. So if, if the Iliad is Achilles' song being sung forever, the Odyssey is Penelope's song being sung forever. So that is my spiel, if you're listening, why Penelope should beat Jane Eyre. And I have no idea if she will. Probably not, because I feel like I get disappointed. <laughs> and, and I just want to reiterate that when we say that Penelope should win, we're not saying that you shouldn't love characters who you love. And most of this has been good natured. We're not it's trying four to offend fantastic anybody. characters. Yeah. We're not I trying mean, to on. offend anybody's uh, love of characters because sometimes that's uh, you can't account for, you know, things like that. I mean, I you know, how long do you fall in love with? Why is she falling in love with Labeef? Um, Everybody wants to go back and vote for Maddie Ross now. I do too. <laughs> we have um, 
the other thing that we've heard a lot from a lot of people is, you know, can you can you give us a primer on Russian literature? So, listeners, I have not mentioned this to Angelina and Tim. I hope you're not going to ask me to use that right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna spring no 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 I'm gonna spring a proposal <laughs> on the air. I'm doing it at the end of the show so it can get cut out. But Tim and Angelina, I think we should do a little um, close reads crossover episode over on the Forma podcast, which is our kind of conversation interview one, where we just sort of. Um, in a couple of weeks or a month or something like so that. Disoriented. We'll do, we'll do, we'll just call it close reads crossover. Um, we'll do a little primer on what translations are good. Why not to be afraid of Russian literature, some of the themes in there, things like that. And we'll do like a half hour, little primer on Russian lit. You in, you, would you agree to do that? Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Well, let's plan. So readers, listeners, that'll be, we'll do that sometime in the next month or two. We'll so. do an Annie negative reasons. They're very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> I will be the voice of the, the negative side. In also that Russian, very hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's my two negatives right there. Long and a foreign language. Exactly. So that's coming. Also, we just want to give, a, give one more quick offer. Um, we have a regional conference coming up that we're doing with all the organizations that are in the Classical Consortium. And that's going to be in Louisville in May. Uh, Martin Crossan is going to speak. Chris Perrin, uh, Adam Andrews, Brian Phillips, um, um, Matt Bianco. Matt Bianco is trying to convince me to give a talk with him. I may or may not do that, but we want to give uh, close readers because we love you and you guys are so awesome. We want to give you 10% off if you want to come to that. There's a little bit of space left. So if you check out the registration on, the, on that registration page, if you use close reads, the code close reads, all one word, then you can get 10% off on that. Um, so we hope we will see some of you there um, in, in Louisville in May. Um, so just want to make that quick offer. Otherwise, that is the end of this show. Angelina, want to say... Say anything. I just want to say, guys, I guess this will air after the conference tomorrow. Like, thanks for whatever close readers came out to hear me talk. Uh, at the Kindred <laughs> It was great meeting you. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Tim. Also, thanks for that bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen. Tim, Tim, any final thoughts? We, I, you'll be in studio next week, so I'll be able to your beautiful face. On behalf of, uh, behalf of this week's co sponsor, the G8 conference, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs> and with that for Angelina Stanford for Tim McIntosh for all of us here at the Cersei Institute thanks so much for listening um, we'll talk to you next week and enjoy True Grid